1: Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host Kevin DeVries and as always if you'd like to reach us at the podcast you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPL Roundtable at gmail.com.
0: Hi everyone I'm Sam Koff I'm a Crystal Palace supporter and you can you can find my ramblings on the Eagles Beak fan site.
1: Hi
2: I'm Richard Burns I'm a Manchester City fan um, and you can also hear me on the Blue Moon podcast.
1: Awesome. Thanks to you two so much for joining us today. Also, a quick shout-out to Jake Jackman, who held down the fort excellently last week uh, as I was out of town. So, big thanks to him. Uh, But let's just dive into the show. So, yesterday, there was a match between Tottenham and Manchester City. We will get to it, Richard. Don't you even worry about it. But afterwards, uh, Pochettino was asked about his squad situation with Ericsson and Toby, both in their final years of their contract. Vertonghen, already questions kind of surrounding his situation as well. And so he mentioned that he feels his squad is still unsettled with the European transfer windows still open. So I figured this was a good time to readdress this. Do you guys think that England should realign the transfer deadline with those in other European leagues? Or should they just keep waiting and see if Europe comes along, Uh, much like with Diego Simeone's recent comments that he thinks that Spain should move theirs up to end before the season starts?
0: Uh, I think it's I think it's a fairly unique case uh, for Spurs obviously with Ericsson angling for a move at the moment. So you can understand how their how their squad might be a little bit unsettled. But I'd also I'd be quite interested to know how many deals actually got done last season after the after the transfer window closed. Um I'd imagine that most clubs in England are still operating with the mindset of, you know, this is the English transfer window, we'll do our business within that and then when it slams shut we won't we you know we'll that's our squad. We won't sell. We won't sell outside of that. Um, I mean, it does. It does almost kind of negate the reason that it was implemented in the first place, which was to you know allow teams to enter the season with settled squads uh, to prevent manage- managers from having to pick weakened teams because they were leaving players out due to transfer speculation and whatever else. Um, and I mean, the, the answer probably would be to realign with the whole of Europe. Um if they're worrying about this disadvantage that it might be creating, um, I know that there's they've actually been calls in Spain from uh, Diego Simeone and Ernesto Valverde for the uh, La liga window. I think they've they've been calling for that to close before the window before, before the season starts. But um, I don't know, I think i I think I'd prefer for the for the English one to go back to how it was before, just because I think this this summer in particular highlighted it. you know, there were so many international tournaments going on um clubs are increasingly becoming more busy on their on their pre-season tours going to the going to the end of nowhere you know all these all these commercial deals that they have seen you know city going to japan you've got liverpool uh going elsewhere teams playing in america all over asia so it just it really does create so little time for, for business to get done um i mean for a club like palace um we we end up doing our stuff last minute anyway, so it wouldn't make much difference. But um, I do kind of understand Pochettino's point in, in realigning just to kind of, you know, get rid of that slight disadvantage that exists at the moment.
2: Yeah, I um, I sort of like the transfer window ending before the season starts. I think it's, it's great to know that you can get the season started with the squad that you're going to have until at least... Uh, well... Having brought in all the players that you can bring in until January, um, but as long as the rest of Europe isn't isn't aligned, then that you can end up massively disadvantaged by that. So, <clears throat> for example. And I always say this, I'm sure nobody will have a great deal of sympathy if I start um, talking about how City's resources could be impacted. But we were in a situation where we could have lost Leroy Sané to Bayern Munich. And to be fair, I think would have lost him to Bayern Munich had uh, had he not suffered his injury. And obviously then can't replace him until January. Now, obviously for City, it's a little bit different because we're, we're pretty blessed in attacking positions anyway. Um, so you wouldn't think that we're going to massively... Um, be disadvantaged by by losing that player but you extrapolate that to all teams and it makes planning so so much harder knowing that you might lose a, a star player and you would think that European clubs can use that to their advantage and um, maybe leverage a little bit in terms of getting players to, to push for a move, and then it puts a club in a very difficult situation, um, you know, the, the parent club in a, in a very difficult situation. Um, equally, it could disadvantage them because I suppose it allows the the owning club to drive up the price a little bit. They can say, well, look, we can't replace this player, so if you want him, you're going to have to pay a huge fee. Um, I just think it, it throws in a lot of unknowns not being aligned, and so I, I think you put it as should um, should England go back to... How it used to be or should they wait for european clubs to sort of align with them my preference would be for the rest of europe to align with how england are doing it and for it to end before a, before a season starts but then you have leagues starting in different points anyway so it's a um it's maybe not even completely easy to do it that way um it's a difficult one but i think i i the risk of sitting on the fence. I I prefer the way England do it, but it has to be, I think it has to be workable so that no club can be disadvantaged by losing a player without the chance to replace them.
1: Yeah, all excellent points. And Sam, I did want to come back to you on this because part of the, the dressing room being unsettled is because, as we mentioned, Ericsson in particular still kind of angling for that dream Real Madrid move which is not too terribly dissimilar from Wilfred Zaha's attempt to leave, although wanting to move to Everton, slightly different in terms of uh, <laughs> status. But obviously Palace opted to keep him. Roy Hodgson very public about uh, making sure that Zaha stayed for the season. Uh, he has been playing, um, but, but how do you see this kind of conversation in the context of Crystal Palace themselves hanging on to a player that potentially wanted to leave, where you're obviously more talented now, but maybe have somebody that's a bit less committed uh, to the side?
0: Sure. I think it was um, I think it was a really tricky kind of toxic situation, to be honest, because you're in a position where you've got this player who's, you know, he's kind of synonymous with Palace's rise over the past five or six years. He got us promoted. He's been the re- main reason that we've stayed in the Premier League. So obviously his value to us is so much more than a lot of clubs are kind of willing to pay. Um, so we were in this position for a lot of the summer where we were asking for a certain amount of money and you had the likes of Arsenal kind of offering half of that. Everton... Edging a little bit closer, but I think by the end of the window it almost emerged that they were only they only made one bit of about fifty two million, I think it was. Um so, you know, you, you kind of put yourself in this position where you either keep a player who's going to be slightly disgruntled, or you sell him for a fraction of the price that you think he's worth, and you kind of, you know, you risk your Premier League status. So I think the more, the longer that it rumbled on, I became more confident that we'd keep hold of him because I think the closer that it got to the end of the window, if we were to accept a bid for him, that would in in the same way that we're saying now, about with the uh, European window still being still being open, if we were to sell him now, we'd not be able to replace him. So you know, as we got closer to the end of that window, I was just convinced that we were going to keep him because I think to Palace keeping him for another six months. Um, keeping him unhappy as for six months is a far more value than of losing him than, than losing him with a, about a week of the window left so um yeah it's it's, it's such a hard one because he obviously he does deserve to play at such a higher level but um you know it's not like we're paying him it's not like he's playing for peanuts you know we're paying him about 130 grand a week which is the highest contrast any player at the club has ever been on um, there's four years left to run on that, so I don't. Think I, I'm I'm quite pleased with the way that we stood our ground, and I don't think we really should have accepted anything that we, that we felt was below uh, what we thought he was worth.
1: Yeah, and to your point, even if he's what 80% motivated, he's still going to be a driving force for Palace. Yeah, and I do think the Ericsson yeah, yes. thing is a little just- bit different because he might leave for free which makes that valuation even more interesting. Like, is $40 worth more than what Ericsson could provide for a year? Because in many ways, the top four for us is, you know, translationally similar towards you in relegation. Like, the amount of money we would make from making the top four versus not may offset the cost of Ericsson potentially leaving on a free, too. I'm sure Juventus, the club that signs everyone on a free.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 like if we if, even if we did get that um even so by the point of the last week of the window and there, was, there were people saying that someone might offer 70 million for Zaha which I think is probably would have been a fair enough deal I just I know I did not see the point in us doing that with a week to go in the window when we wouldn't have had time to find a replacement as opposed to doing it either early in January or early next summer when we've got time to you know plan and find someone to come in you can kind of Maybe not have the same impact that he does, but have a more positive impact on the squad rather than leave this gaping hole that is going to leave a significant disadvantage for the rest of the campaign. Yeah, it's been a pretty tiresome saga, to be honest, hasn't it? It's just been—it mm. has been one of those where it's it's running all summer, but nothing's really happened. If mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There's he's been linked with. He's been linked with um two clubs like Arsenal and Everton are the only ones who ever made bids, I think. And then he's obviously handed in the transfer request. And it just kinda of made it a bit awkward that he handed in that transfer request because it was and it you know, was like, well, so close to deadline he day, hey, right? The it
1: was like two or three yeah. days before.
0: And it was just kind of it seemed like a really desperate plea to get out of there, which I guess maybe after watching our performance today might have been might makes it a little bit more understandable. But uh, <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a tough one to take, and it was a tough one to watch unfold because obviously there is this kind of unique relationship between Zaha and the fans, and um, you know, and we have kind of we like he has a lot. To, he as much as he has um, helped us retain that Premier League status, he does kind of have a bit. He owes a bit to Palace after we kind of you know gave him the window back. Back for mm. his career after the, it kind of didn't work out from him at United um, so yeah, no, it was a tough one but uh, hopefully, hopefully over the next few weeks he'll kind of rediscover some of that form because obviously he's not fully fit yet, he played in the AFCON and everything, mm-hmm. so fingers crossed he comes good again.
1: Yeah, we'll move there to a player that is very much hit form. Uh, if you look at the goal scoring charts, of course you will see Raheem Sterling at the tippy top uh, which I'm sure will be of delight to Richard, although he may complain about potentially needing to be one more from the board choice in the first week. Uh, but alongside him is Timu Puki, Norwich's striker, scores a hat-trick on Saturday. We've seen this before, with promoted strikers coming up scoring bundles of goals, although it has felt like a little while since it's been the case. It was the Austin and Ingsier in particular that sticks out as a pair of promoted strikers coming up doing well. Mitrovic started last season pretty hot and then faded pretty hard uh, post-Jokonovic. Um, but the overall question is: Do you think a player like Timu Puki can sustain this for this season, or is he another one of those kind of flash in the pan? He's going to burn bright while he does, and then kind of fade.
0: I think it's yeah, it's, it's it's. I think it's a strange one because obviously he scored. He kind of came out of nowhere last season. Um, not many people had kind of known the name Puki before he's banging all these guys for Norwich. I think I knew a couple of. I know a couple of Celtic fans. And um, he was up there about three or four years ago and couldn't buy himself a goal and then went away, played for Bromby. I think I scored something like one in three. And then obviously last year just couldn't stop. Um, And I know you mentioned uh, Austin Ings, uh, Ricky Lambert, when he came up with Southampton. And I think the kind of thing with those players is that they all played in teams. This is going to sound quite simple, but they they played in teams who kind of played to their strengths. Um and Norwich are a kind of team like Pukki likes to play on the shoulder. There are a lot of balls in behind for him to run onto, which has been really apparent in the first two games that they've played. Um and you know, Norwich look like quite a fun team. They're gonna um they're gonna create a lot of chances and he just seems to be a striker who has a habit of scoring goals. Um and he just seems to be in the right position at the right time. Um, which, you know, as a striker is a really good kind of skill to have. Um so I I do believe that he'll probably Get himself well, he's halfway there already, but I do believe that it'll kind of get himself into double figures. Um whether he can sustain that throughout the season, that'll obviously depend on Norwich's form as well, because it's easy to it's easy to be bang them in when um, there's kind of a momentum after promotion. But as you get into those winter months and the Premier League it always gets a little bit tougher for the promoted sides, they might dry up. But um but yeah, I kind of I think he'll I think he'll keep it up and Norwich will obviously need him to if they're gonna stay up.
2: I think one of the things that it'd be um, that, that's really encouraging for Norwich fans about the goals that he's been scoring is there's a lot of different types of goals in there. So um, completely take the point that Norwich sort of play to him in that sort of running off the shoulder style. But then you look at his first goal against Newcastle. It's a snap volley like that's a um, it's a very instinctive bit of strike play. That you look at his goal at, uh, against Liverpool at Anfield. And it's um, it, it's still instinctive, but it's that sort of one touch and then just knowing where the net is without having to look. That's like a, a, a proper striker's finish in the box. It's a great goal. And then, yes, uh, his second two against Newcastle were um, obviously a little bit different. So his, his third one, his hat-trick goal, he found himself in a ludicrous amount of space and he probably can't bank on that happening uh, quite too many more times this season. I don't think it was... Um, perhaps more emblematic of Newcastle's defending than his, his striking quality. Um, but his, his second one, again, it's, it's a great finish down low, and it's just, without having to having too much time to think, to be picking out the corner of the net, whether it be um, with the ball at his feet or a snap volley, I think when you see a striker who's got a bit of variety in the way that that he can score goals, that suggests to me that the goals... Will keep coming from this season. I'm not sure he'll keep up his current average because if he does, he'll finish the season on 76 goals, which would be, um, I think, possibly better than anything Messi or Ronaldo have ever posted. So uh, I think w- we can count on him maybe drying up from that average. Um, but I think he'll, I think he'll keep finding the net. He's in. You know, sometimes you just get this, don't you, where, where players maybe blossom later into the careers, 29 goals with no penalties last season in the championship is a phenomenal return. Um, And yeah, long may it continue because it's it's great to see promoted teams doing well. Norwich are playing um, a very entertaining style of football and that's got to be great fun for a striker to play in that kind of team. He clearly, clearly is, is very at home there. Suits everything that his team are trying to do. I think it's probably a bit of a, um, a bit of a talisman for them. So yeah, I, I would foresee him continuing to score goals, but albeit not quite at a rate of two a game.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then both of you kind of alluded to how hot of a start he's gotten off to, and then, say, I'm mentioning these basically already halfway to double digits. If you had to guess, where do you think that final goal tally will land for Pookie?
0: Oh, God, that's a tough one. I think, given that he's had such a good start, I'll go... Between twelve and fifteen, probably. Maybe. I'll go with fifteen. I'll go with
2: fifteen. Yeah, I think that's that's probably about fair. Um, if he if he can continue to really put them away in the home games against some of the teams that Norwich will really be looking to to have good wins against to give themselves the kind of season that they want, then you never know. It might be a bit of a breakout and push towards twenty, which would be would be an exceptional season, but. Considering the start he's had, it it might not be that fanciful. Um, but I would I would tend to agree more with Sam and, and put him on about 15 for the year.
1: Yeah, uh, and if you have a 15-goal score, you stand a very good chance of standing up, mm. just regardless mm. of what happens throughout. I did an article, whew, oh man, that might have been a long time ago. I don't know if those numbers still hold up. But I think it was after the Charlie Austin year that um, almost every uh, team with a goal score of 12-plus that was recently promoted stayed up. But then I think Austin broke that rule and maybe Mitrovic would have last season. I don't remember what his final tally ended up being. But regardless, very good news for Norwich, the start that Pukis had and the fact that if he even modestly sustains those numbers that they could stand a much better chance of staying up than many would have thought at the start of the season. All right, now we will take a quick break and we will be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. All right, and we are back. Sam, we will continue to start with you. We'll talk a little bit more about Crystal Palace. Uh, Obviously, we touched on Zaha in the opening. No goals for him yet, which will come as a little surprise considering Palace have yet to score a goal yet overall. One of those three teams that have not scored yet. One of them has only played one game with Wolves still yet to play as we record. Uh, Only one team with fewer shots in the Premier League. Also Wolves who have played again just that one game. What do you think is wrong in attack for Crystal Palace. Obviously, we know about Benteki's issues. Striker was listed as a place that you, well, Palace fans as a whole thought would be addressed this window, but then it wasn't. Is this a thing that can be reversed, or is this kind of a fatal defect of this Palace team?
0: Um, I just, I just think it's very uh, reflective of where we are at the moment. It's, and it's, you know, it's not been, it's not been a secret last season. It wasn't a secret before that. Um, and I think generally Roy Hodgson has been very let down, and and that we haven't ad- addressed that position. Um, and the real, the real kind of disappointment was that we weren't even necessarily linked with anyone. I think um, towards the end of end of the window, we were linked with Saw, who obviously ended up at Watford, in entered, Chalove, um, which I thought would yeah, have been and a good Chalove signing as well. Um, but it just never really felt that there was that much effort to kind of address that position. Um, and obviously, it's been such a problem area for us that it's. Um, it's generally mind-boggling that we didn't. Um, so we're kind of left now with relying again on Teco who scored well, I think it was one goal last season, uh, won the season before that. Jordan Ayew, uh, who scored twice last season. Basically, Timu uh, Puki has scored more goals in two games than all of our strikers did last season. So um, that kind of that kind of tells Oof. you where we are. Um, and yeah, I mean, the first two games have kind of they haven't given us any hope that it's going to be any different. Um, I know towards the end of last season, we were scoring more goals away from home. Um, it didn't really look like that might continue to be the case this season today, whether that's because, you know, Zaha's still working back to full fitness. Townsend didn't quite look at his best. But I think the real issue is that we're kind of, you know, we're relying on the same core group of players that we have been for the last two or three seasons. And there is always a danger that that just becomes a little bit stagnant. And when there's not really that much pressure for places, you um, I don't think players kind of perform um, quite as well because they're never looking over their shoulder, you know, and they've got that kind of pressure on their place. And I do kind of worry about us a little bit this season, especially in that going forward department that we are just relying on those kind of three or four core players to, to turn it on again and kind of carry us away from relegation.
1: Yeah, it wasn't just the attack that didn't get heavily supplemented, although getting Gary Cahill a great snag getting James McCarthy is very damaging for a commentator. So we have to worry about that versus <laughs> MacArthur. Um, but on the whole, did you feel that palace did enough in the summer to achieve whatever targets you think you have this season?
0: Um, well, that's, a, that's a good that's another question is kind of what, none of us are actually too sure what our target is this season. Um, and I think a lot of our fans have been a bit disillusioned with our transfer business, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, Getting um, selling Wan-Bissaka so early, you would have hoped that we at least would have signed a replacement, whereas now we're relying on Joel Ward, who is you know, not at the earliest stage of his career, isn't necessarily the highest quality Premier League right-back either. Um, we also haven't got a backup left-back, we've seen so about eight centre-backs, we've got about <laughs> 14 centre-midfielders, so it's a very kind of um, imbalanced squad. Uh, we haven't got cover in certain areas, we've got too much cover in others uh obviously Cahill was a good addition uh he hasn't played yet which has been strange as well uh Kamarasa has come in who's quite exciting but he also didn't make the squad today uh McCarthy another one who, who you know he was he was good a few years ago but I think he's only played he's only completed 90 minutes of football once in the past three seasons so again it's just it is a very very thin squad so I think there is quite a bit of concern about you know, if we collected one or two injuries like we have in previous seasons, we don't necessarily have the have the depth to cover that. And I think the main worry is that a lot of the teams that have been in and around us over the past few seasons have strengthened. You know, West Ham haven't got off to a flying start, but they have signed some good players. Um, Brighton as well; they've made they've made a few good signings. Um, Leicester, obviously, I think you know you've got Leicester, Everton, and Wolves kind of maybe about to pull away from the rest of that pack outside of the top six now. Um, So it's kind of leaving us in this bit of limbo where I think a lot of Palace fans are a bit worried about where we stand and I think we're going to be looking over our shoulders a little bit more than we are looking up.
1: Mm. And it should be noted that you've only conceded once this season, so that is the converse of the not scoring up front. So Mm. if the goals would start pouring in, in theory, uh, you'd start (laughs) to see those results turn around pretty quickly. Uh, Time will tell in that regard. Coming to you now, Richard, to talk about Manchester City. I don't want to bring up VAR. We've already discussed it on the first two episodes of the season, and this could very quickly become a VAR-based podcast if we did. Um, But I did want to ask about the interaction between Aguero and Pep Guardiola. When Aguero was subbed off, for those that don't know, had a bit of a shouting match back and forth with Guardiola, both of them kind of turning back a couple of times to keep it going, which was a little surprising, although it did remind me that last year around this time, When I was talking to you about Aguero's role in the city side, you were mentioning that it might be a bit more diminished, that Jesus might get his chance to really establish himself as kind of the future of that position for Manchester City, but Aguero ended up kind of holding on like the stalwart he's been at that position for years, and then again just a year later, all those tensions seem to be boiling up around the same time. How do you think this will be resolved, and where do you think this came from?
2: Well, just first of all, um, I was disastrously, um, happily, but incredibly wrong with my shout last year. Um, obviously, Aguero proved himself um, massively. I think part of why I thought it might be a diminished role last year was because I thought that uh, Gabriel Jesus would really kick on and didn't. Um, and Aguero proved himself that he could be a Pep Guardiola striker. So the tensions that were there previously, and I think it's, it's pretty well known that there was some friction between uh, Guardiola and Aguero in, uh, in perhaps first couple of years because Aguero just he he was not the type of striker that Guardiola wanted, and it was never a question of was Aguero a great striker. I think anybody can see that he is. He's one of the best at the Premier League scene. He scores goals for fun, scores all type of goals, but he didn't work in the way that. Pep wanted him to, and he wasn't a slouch either, but it was a very different kind of work that he'd do. Um, and I think Aguero took a lot of convincing to to take that role on and be, and become the kind of striker that Guardiola was demanding of him. And we went through a period where Guardiola would be asked a question about Aguero and he'd say, well, the club want him to stay, but really it's up to Sergio. And then Aguero would say, well, I'd love to stay, but really it's up to the club. And it was just clear that there was was some ongoing friction. In Jesus' first year, he ousted Aguero, plain and simple. And Pep has since admitted that, yeah, Jesus became his number one striker. Through injury, Aguero got his place back. And from about the middle of the season before last, Aguero hit form in the way that Guardiola wanted him to. And then he's not looked back since Um, the the game where I sort of... The the game where it turned for me was the home leg against Monaco in the Champions League when City won 5-3. Aguero was absolutely phenomenal in that game. And he worked his backside off. He was all over the pitch. And I I remember coming away from that game thinking... It looks like he's cracked it. It looks like if, if he's going to play like that, then there's not going to be a problem. And it's pretty much has been that way ever since. Certainly last season, all this talk of of tensions between them completely died down. Which it will do when you've got a striker who's bagging as many goals as Aguero is and playing for the team in the way that he was. There was there wasn't to be there, there couldn't have been a problem between them. Um, so. The issue yesterday does come as as a massive, massive surprise. Um, Pep is well known for, I assume this is something that other people pick up on and not just City fans, Pep is well known for doing his coaching in the immediate aftermath of a a player's performance. He doesn't believe in just waiting until they get in the dressing room. So it's why you see he'll have in-depth conversations with players immediately after the final whistle. And it, it can sometimes look like he's arguing with them and he's... He's not the talking about what's going on in the game kind of thing. Um, because he wants to get a message in instantly where something can be corrected. He wants to correct it. And so I, quite how yesterday's incident with Aguero has boiled into what it did, I'm not entirely sure um, because it does seem to have come out of nowhere. It's been a long time since there's even been whispers in the press of a problem between the two. So my hope, and to be honest, what I what I sort of believe has happened my hope is that it is just the heat of the moment, misunderstanding. Um, I think Pep said after the game that Aguero had thought that he was being punished for not tracking um, the corner that Lucas Mora scored from. Um, mm. And if if that's the case, if it was a misunderstanding, then great. I'm, you obviously don't want to see a star player and a manager arguing on the touchline, but from time to time in a frustrating game, if that frustration boils over a little bit, I don't mind seeing that a player wants to stay on the pitch. And I also don't mind seeing a manager put him in his place and remind him who's who's boss. Um, you don't obviously want that happening regularly, but as a, as a one-off, I'll be honest, I'm not overly concerned about it. And um, if it were to happen again, then it would start to be a concern and you think, hang on, you know, are, are these two sort of rubbing each other up the wrong way again? But um, Aguero played pretty well. He got a he got a typical sort of Aguero strikers instinct type goal, um, and Jesus I think was the right player to bring on at the time as well, um, because he offers something completely different to Aguero. We were struggling to make that. You know, we had chance after chance and we we're struggling to make the breakthrough for the winning goal. Um, it nearly proved the perfect substitution because Jesus got his goal, which was ruled out, um, but through no fault of his own. Um, So yeah, I think just a, I think a bit of a, um, either party making a mountain out of a molehill um, and I'm not concerned about what it represents going forward. Um, But if you were to ask me again in a couple of weeks and there's been similar tensions and I'd start to have a lot of concerns.
1: Just gut instinct. Even after that, do you think Aguero starts next week? Uh,
2: Oh, God. Um, I'm going to say no, because Jesus was fantastic against West Ham. I thought he was really, really good. Um, And I think he will offer a lot because we've got Bournemouth next week. And I think he can offer a lot in that type of game um, because I think City def- Bournemouth defend with, I think, a pretty high line. But last year, they found out a way to, I think for the first time, they found out a way to really shut City off. And we won with a bit of a Fluky Mahrez goal um, when we won 1-0 at Bournemouth towards the end of the season. And I think Guardiola will see that and think that what Jesus offers as a hold-up player uh, might well be valuable at bringing people in to then lay them off run off the defender, play the three-roll, break the lines, um, which maybe he does that a little bit more than Aguero does. But then you could say Aguero's the man who then gets in those spaces better than Jesus does. Uh, gut instinct is no Jesus starts next week, but honestly, um, I would have said that anyway.
1: Yeah, with Pep's uh, rotation cycle, there could be loads of reasons why Aguero wouldn't start next week, but I do think if he doesn't, there will certainly be lots of narrative spun up about it being because of this uh, confrontation on the day. I promised you in the pre-chat that I wasn't going to bring up VAR meaningfully, and so I didn't. Just interesting that uh, Aguero did apologize during that check, and then does he have to undo that apology (laughs) now that that Jesus goal did not count? Um, We will next move into Player Watch. We're just going to quickly go through and discuss some of the players at our clubs uh, who have impressed most in this young, fledgling season. We'll start with you, Sam.
0: Uh Do we have to? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there has been one. Um, uh, I think, I mean, I'd probably go with maybe Max Meyer. He was pretty anonymous today, but he's kind of the, I guess I'd say he's the one that we've actually got some pretty high hopes for this season. Um, I think we had high hopes for him a, ahead of last season as well, but that was perhaps unrealistic expecting a young, a young foreign player to come into the league and immediately adapt to it. Um, whereas this year he's had a pre-season behind him. He looks like he's bulked up a little bit. And, you know, there were signs at the end of end of last year that he was kind of coming to terms with, you know, the different paces of the league. He's not, he's not the biggest guy in the world. So I think it was just, you know, it took him a while to adapt to that. Um, so, yeah, he looked good against Everton, uh, missed a couple of decent chances, but, you know, he was getting into those positions, which was promising. And uh, it was quite nice to have an outlet, which wasn't Zaha for once. Uh, he kind of got lost today against Sheffield United being out on the left wing, which I think if Hodgson continues to play him there, he, we won't see the best of him. So there's kind of, I think there's a genuine hope that if we move him a little bit more central, kind of playing in that role just behind the striker, that he might start to affect games a little bit more. Um, so he's probably one guy that I'd pick out. And also Jordan I, funnily enough, I know he didn't play today, but he was really good against Everton. I think he got voted man of the match. Yeah. Um, I know so it was. He was a pretty, a pretty uninspiring signing at two and a half million. But he came in, and did a job last last week. Um, whether he's going to get many more opportunities now that Zaha's back, I don't know. But um, yeah, he's probably the the only other guy that has kind of covered himself in any glory so far this season.
1: Well, hopefully you get more examples soon. <laughs> Things crossed, <laughs> just
0: whoever scores the first goal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's absolutely fair. Uh, Richard, uh, uh, Sterling seems the obvious choice, but who else has stood out for you at City this far?
2: Um, probably a boring answer, um, but Kevin De Bruyne. After last season um, being so interrupted by injury, uh, to have we could see in pre-season that he was right back on form. Some of the uh, some of the passes that he was making um, and, and that vision that he was showing in the pre-season games were absolutely outrageous and he has carried that form straight into the season. The crosses yesterday for both of the goals, the one for Sterling's header was absolutely unbelievable. To fly a ball that high and deep straight onto somebody's head, taking out an entire defence and, you know, not a not too shoddy a defence at that um it's just absolutely magnificent there was nothing there was nothing Tottenham could have done to defend it um same again for the second goal um absolutely the the perfect ball for aguero um and then he was at it he was at it all through the game um the, the there was a few sort of slide rule passes that he played in the second half where he, he's just sort of back to his his best where every touch is with such purpose and, um, like he's I know this is a horrible sort of cliche and, and, and sort of mixing games and everything, but at times it is. He is like a chess player in a, in and seeing everything three, four, five moves ahead, um, and he's he's absolutely sort of Guardiola's tactician on the pitch, uh, and on current, I, I'm wary of making too big a statement just two games in, but I think, on the evidence of the first two games he's potentially on for an even better season than he had 2 years ago in the 100 points campaign when he was very unlucky to lose out to Mo Salah which understandable but un- unlucky on a personal level to lose out to uh, Mo Salah for the player of the year award um and if he's if de bruyne is going to be in that form then city will be better than they were last season because he he just lifts the whole team even even beyond the level of the team that got 98 points last year and won three trophies he's, he's that good um, and he's just a, an absolute joy to watch
1: all right i haven't jumped in with any tottenham stuff outside the opening topic and you guys got a reprieve from me last week so i will jump in here and i would actually be interested in your take on this uh richard because i thought at times he wasn't that involved but when he was he was brilliant it was Tangi and dombele um obviously the key signing for us in the summer it was the one that Poch always wanted Somehow got him over most European clubs that were interested. Um, just the fact that he can handle everything in midfield. It, <laughs> during the match, a friend mentioned that was like, if Sissoko could do anything in the final third. Um, <laughs> because, and Dombele obviously provides that kind of tackling and interception capability in the midfield. He offers that same kind of recovery pace, um, even when he's beaten. The ball skills, the and then moving forward, the creativity. Obviously set up one of the goals yesterday. Um, and then scored a goal on his debut and it was a rocket of a goal at that. Um, It it takes a lot um, especially for me I I tend to kind of judge things by expectations which isn't always the best thing but I had high expectations for somebody coming in that is our transfer um, record holder to come in try to see what kind of impact he could bring to the midfield and I feel like he's surpassed my even high expectations early on. Um, Obviously, there will be some, you know, bumps and bruises along the way. I did think he started the Villa match slowly as he kind of adjusted to the pace of the Premier League or the recently championship, uh, which is why I was a little bit worried at that start of that Villa match. But um, on the whole, Ndombele has been fantastic and looks every bit the player we were hoping he would be uh, when we signed him in the summer. Were you you impressed by him yesterday, Richard?
2: Yeah, I think... um to your sort of first point that there were times where he, he wasn't necessarily or didn't seem that involved i went looking forward to seeing him obviously you don't particularly want one of your opponent's potential best players to have a good game but okay. as a football fan you know i was looking forward to seeing him because I'm, I'm not going to lie i didn't um i've not seen much of him before coming to england but obviously heard a lot about him um and at times to be honest he'd sort of forgot that he was there because he's I, I guess the nature of a lot of his job um similar as opposed to what we've brought in with Rodri in some of that role, the nature of a lot of that job is it is going to go unnoticed um it is not necessarily with some of the work deeper in midfield he's not always going to be the eye catching player and I think that's that's absolutely fine it's what you want from from a player in that role um but he does have like you say that the creative side as well he was um he was involved in in the first goal he's he looks to have a little bit of everything that you want from a midfielder. And I think against City, who have a particularly strong midfield, if you can come out winning any of those battles, then you know it, it says something, Particularly, particularly early in a Premier League career, because it's, again, a massive cliche, but every player that ever comes to the Premier League from a different league, every pundit that ever speaks about it will tell you, it takes time to adjust to the Premier League. It is a faster league than than most others. It's incredibly competitive in every single game. Um, and he's already standing out. He's already making a difference. Um, I thought one thing that was incredibly telling about his attitude against villa was that when he scored he didn't sit back and revel in scoring a really really good goal on his debut um he was straight away trying to get the team back up the pitch because he wanted he, he wanted the winning goal he wanted Tottenham to push on and i think that kind of stuff can also go unnoticed but it speaks a lot of fitting straight into a dressing room and of a player's mentality and attitude and leadership skills that they can have the sort of sense of mind um our presence of mind to do that in the heat of a, a difficult game there was he, he didn't sit back and celebrate or he didn't run off celebrating his goal which he sort of you know by rights he could have done it was a really good finish um and i think he comes with a lot of expectation and, and maybe a bit of pressure through the price tag um but i think is that sort of attitude speaks volumes about um about how he will how he will see the game, and I think, on the evidence of the first two games, Tottenham have got a very very good player.
1: Yeah, certainly excited, and we both mentioned it now. But yeah, I'd agree that at times. It doesn't look like he's doing anything, but the things he does do seem to be done quite well. Um, and then we will wrap up with match previews, since the Premier League is fully back in full swing, which is a delight. Uh, we will start off with you, Sam, as we have been doing. Uh, you will be traveling to Manchester United for the wan Basaka derby, if you will. You might not, <laughs> but you, you could. Um, oh. Curious to get your take on this one. Hanging into that, although knowing that as we record, United have yet to play their second match of the season
0: yeah it's almost cruel that we have to see him again so soon, isn't it but uh yeah I think we um you yeah, know we'll head up there with not <laughs> not the not the highest hopes I think that was why it kind of made um these first two games quite significant that we got our first three points out of them, and obviously we haven't um so going up there next week i mean we got we got a point last year um but that was when Mourinho was still in charge and Uh, Having seen how they played against Chelsea last weekend, um, (laughs) I I can't sound too optimistic. I think it would just be nice to see a performance with a little bit more bite and imagination to it than today. We really kind of, we really sort of folded in some of the pressure that Sheffield United put us under. um, And we just couldn't really cope with, you know, how up for it they were, which was kind of the most disappointing thing, I think. So, you know, not really expecting anything in the game against United, but if we can... At least kind of show some sort of direction and just to give the fans a bit of a lift after what have been maybe maybe even score a goal. If we score a goal, I'll be happy. Let's go with that.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, then coming to you now, Richard. Bournemouth versus Manchester City. You kind of already alluded to Jesus and the kind of havoc he could wreak on that Bournemouth back line who were not particularly good last season and have already kind of rotated some of their wing backs this one. Uh, what are you expecting heading into this match?
2: Um, well Bournemouth changed for City last season. They finally did it. We've we've racked up some very very big wins um, against them um, ever since their promotion. We've had a, a couple of sort of fours and fives, and 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 never had a problem against them. Last season, Eddie Howe sort of finally uh, finally learned from that, and they just completely sat back against us. I think, if I remember rightly, they were the first team in years to not have a single shot in a Premier League game of football never mind not having a shot on target they just didn't register a shot at all which I think um, speaks quite a lot about how they approach the game and I think I'm not saying that they won't have a shot but I think having learned from how much that frustrated City because it did excuse me um, I wouldn't be surprised if Bournemouth try that again and City probably will find that hard to break down because if If any team is so committed to defending that they're willing to sacrifice having any shots, then it doesn't matter who you are. If the other team does that well and sits that deep, that is a very, very difficult thing to get past. But the difference uh, this year is we've got... a de bruyne who is absolutely flying i can't remember if he was fit when we played there In i think it was april last year uh, but if he was he certainly wasn't in the kind of form that he started this season in um feel
1: safe to assume de bruyne wasn't fit for any match last season yeah exactly um so he'll be
2: as i sort of spoke on before he will pull the team up i would imagine that um they'll be relying a lot on his sort of vision and, and City will try and take play wide. It's typically what we do once we've once we've had a difficult away game um, where teams have managed to narrow the pitch. Um, I think of Crystal Palace a couple of years ago in the nil-nil draw there. Last year City didn't really have much of a problem because they just played the game so wide and so fast. Um that, that Pep always learns from difficult experiences. So I would expect City to try and play really, really wide. Probably means playing um Mares and sterling to do that uh, sterling is quite an obvious one because you can't really drop him but i would think that mares gets the nod in this one as well um and then maybe bernardo and de bruyne sort of central with david silverstein from the bench again would be my prediction and um, but a pep team is notoriously hard to predict i would think you know i think we have to be confident of a city win um because they win most games uh, which probably sounds really arrogant so sorry um But I I don't particularly think it will be easy because Bournemouth now have a blueprint where they've figured out a way to make life difficult for City. Uh, But like I say, Pep often learns from difficult experiences, so I'm I'm confident that he will have done that again.
1: Mm. Yeah, wrapping up with uh, Tottenham hosting Newcastle, I think is going to be a very interesting one because uh, I don't think Tottenham were particularly great in either the Villa match or the Manchester City match, despite picking up four points from the two of them combined. Uh, On the other hand, Newcastle have been pretty particularly awful. And uh, I've already seen some Steve Bruce out stuff, kind of sideways eyes emoji at Jake Jackman, uh, who comes on here and talks about Newcastle frequently. Um, So I, I think it's really interesting. I think just due to regression, I would have expected that regardless of who this opponent was, the Tottenham could slip up a bit. Um, but because it's this Newcastle side, maybe not. I know Joelinton picked up a knock last weekend. Not really sure if he will be fit in time. And then kind of the game changer for us is that Human Son is finally back. Um, after the suspension, he picked up versus Bournemouth uh, last season. Thanks, Jefferson Lerma um but uh anyway so getting Sun back into the side is going to be massive i think what's going to be so fascinating is going to be a a micro version of what happened with lucas for the champions league final last season which is what do you do with lamella who scored a great curling goal although who knows what the heck ederson was thinking but if you try to figure out what ederson is ever thinking seems that way the path of craziness lies um should Lamella keep his spot Lucas comes on he scores so does that mean it's Lucas and Lamella does Sun immediately get re back into the squad because we've clearly missed him over the last few weeks how that's handled is going to be very interesting and I think the other thing to keep an eye on is what does the midfield end up being because also soon you're going to have Deli Ali back we still technically have Christian Erickson obviously hoping that that's the case um, come September 2nd but now you have Lo Celso and Ndombele. Are they supposed to be used as a double pivot? Is it one or the other depending on the opponent? Really not sure, and I think it'll be really interesting for neutrals and fans alike to see how all of these positional battles break down. Obviously, on the whole, getting depth at those positions is what I think brings us much closer to City and Liverpool this season, whether or not we surpass them or even one of them remains to be seen. But we do have that depth now, but now come all those questions of who's going to play and when the same way uh, I'm sure fantasy players will know has been the case at City and Liverpool. And now we finally have that issue ourselves uh, that in theory will be good come the end of the season, but makes for very interesting narratives during it. Um, On the whole, I do think Tottenham will be able to beat Newcastle. I'm just mildly hesitant, like I said, because of the kind of trends Uh, and the points we've picked up that you could argue weren't as deserved or that we weren't the better team for swathes of those matches. Uh, But I I just think Newcastle aren't good enough to be the team to upset that run. All right, that will do it for us today, though. Thanks to you two so much. If you'd like to tell the folks where they could find you or any projects you're working on, now would be a good time.
0: Yeah, cheers, Kev. I've um, I've been Sam Carr. If I'm a Crystal Palace fan, you can find me... At Sam double underscore carp on Twitter, or you can find my r- longer ramblings on the Eagles Beak fan site.
2: Yeah, um, I'm uh, on Twitter at Richard the Burns, and I am part of the Blue Moon Podcast, which is a weekly dedicated Manchester City podcast released every Friday, uh, and on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
1: Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroth. Uh, you can find my fantasy writings over at ESPN as well. Uh, and then I also do some live match commentaries for Omnisport if you're interested in checking those out. Uh, but thanks again to you two for joining me. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening.